Welcome to all of you, and thank you for coming. Those of you that are, uh, I don't know what the right word is, APEC groupies, know that this is something that we do every year at CSIS. We usually do it immediately before the summit. Uh, last year, for scheduling reasons, we were unable to do that. So we've decided, we decided that we would do a post-summit, uh, uh, not a review of the last one, but a well in advance look ahead to the next one, which is going to be in Chile in, in November. So we are gathered here to try to kick off, if you will, launch the year of 2019 and the uh, Chilean APEC summit with, I think, some excellent uh, remarks by our APEC ambassador and then a, a panel. And we're going to focus on um, uh, future technologies, really, digital trade and the fourth industrial revolution and how APEC can play a role. But we're also going to talk, uh, I think, in general about what APEC's role has been and will be or can be um, going forward on a variety of fronts. And we've really got an excellent uh, group here to uh, do that with us. And I'm going to do tell you how it's going to proceed. And then Monica is going to introduce uh, our, our speaker. We're going to have... Um, uh, Monica Whaley of NCAPEC is going to uh, begin uh, with some brief comments. She will introduce Ambassador Matthews, who is going to give our keynote. Um, and then uh, we are going to have a panel discussion uh, when I'll introduce the panelists uh, once, once we're up there. Uh, Monica and Ambassador Matthews are going to join the panel as well. Uh, but won't be making you know additional presentations. So we'll talk amongst themselves ourselves for a while um, after they each, uh, make brief comments, and then we'll have Q and A from all of you. So that's the plan, and so it's my uh, pleasure. Uh, first, before I introduce uh, Monica, to wish everybody happy Lunar New Year. Uh, I gather it's the year of the pig. Uh, Jonathan tells me in Vietnam it's the year of the cat. I don't understand that, but. Uh, it's the year of the pig everywhere else, so happy, whatever the right phrase is for that. Um, and it's my great pleasure to introduce uh, Monica Whaley. She is the president of the National Center for APEC and its subsidiary, organiza subsidiary organization, Pacific Summit Resources. And she has been with APEC, NCAPEC, from the beginning, uh, which is 25 years, and has led the organization since 2002. So she is a veteran of many, many summits, uh, and many, many conferences and all things APEC. And uh, it's a real honor to have her with us and to get us uh, started. So I'll turn it over to Monica to introduce our speaker. Thank you, Bill, and thank you, Jonathan, and uh, the team here at CSIS. This is always such a treat to come to CSIS in this beautiful facility and, and do this event every year. I think this is about the 10th or 11th year that we've done um, an APEC-focused event here at CSIS, and we always are happy to come back, so thank you. Um, one of the things that was true when we first started this, um, this event, we started to focus on why APEC was, when it started 25 years ago, the only leaders level gathering. Uh, in fact, it was the sort of first of its kind. Uh, and now the leaders, presidents and prime ministers, et cetera, have a number of these summits on their calendars. And uh, I think that's one of the things that, that makes us, especially now as APEC um, gets a little older and uh, as I get a little older and then but we, we focus on what where can APEC go next where does APEC fit in in this 
sort of panoply of acronyms and, and meetings that people have. So one of the things that makes APEC unique is part of why the National Center for APEC exists. Uh, we were created after the very first leaders meeting in Blake Island near Seattle. Um, after 1993's meeting there uh, that President Clinton hosted because the focus of that meeting or one of the themes of the meeting was the need to have the private sector interact with the APEC process. And so the National Center for APEC was established in order to make that happen or to try to find ways to make that happen. In those early days, there were not very many avenues for private sector active participation in APEC. Uh, fast forward 25 years, and there are quite a number of avenues that the private sector has for active engagement. A number of people in this room, actually, I know, have been actively engaged in the APEC process over the years. Um, it's something we think has made APEC uh, better by its and, and able to move forward on its agenda in very practical ways and in ways that have uh, very positive impacts on the business community. But especially in the kinds of areas that we're going to be talking about today, emerging areas, um, new to new to the, the world and business areas. Uh, a few years ago, it was uh, environmental goods and services. Um, many years ago, it was information technology products. APEC has a way to sort of find a path in new areas um, that, or to be a trial kitchen or um, there are lots of different laboratory, um, lots of different uh, ways to describe it. But it's a way to try to look at new issues, emerging issues and figure out a way forward. And because the private sector is at the table, often those conversations can include what impact that would have on the private sector. So we think APEC, uh, even in the panoply of stars of these, these other organizations and other gatherings and other things that happen, still has a very unique role, especially for the private sector. Um, one of the things that we're looking forward to this year, especially our, our friends from Chile couldn't be here with us this morning, but the list of issues that they are focusing on this year, which we'll touch upon more, but it um, really are focused on uh, the digital society and, and broadly how that touches on a number of different areas um, and women's empowerment and inclusion. And those two issues we think are going to also be carried forward very strongly, as well as um, regional economic integration, which is always APEC's question, kind of the underlying uh, table of, of all of APEC's work. Um, they're going to be carried forward as Malaysia and um, New Zealand carry the APEC torch forward in 2020 and 2021. Um, so we're trying to kind of look at where, where APEC fits in and all of this. One of the things that um, Ambassador Matthews has uh, done in APEC is really done a lot of thinking about where APEC goes next and how it fits in. So I hope he touches on some of those issues as he uh, gives us his remarks. Um, Matt Matthews is the Assistant Secretary of, uh, for, sorry, Deputy Assistant Secretary for Australia, New Zealand and the Pacific, as well as serving concurrently as the senior official for APEC. He was just recently confirmed, one of the lucky few, uh, recently confirmed by the Senate to serve as the uh, United States' next ambassador to Brunei, Darussalam. So congratulations, Ambassador Matthews. Um, he has, is a veteran of, of Asia-Pacific um, policies and politics, both on the security side and on the economic side. 
um, after a long career in, in that. And he's done uh, great things with APEC and for APEC and has been a wonderful partner for the private sector, really kind of understanding that role that the private sector plays and where it intersects with the APEC process. So uh, we're delighted to have him, a fellow Pacific Northwest native. Um, Matt's, Matt's from Portland and I'm from Seattle. So that's always a, bit, a good uh, com commonality for us. Um, anyways, but thank you, Matt. And we'll um, look forward to hearing from your, your remarks. Ambassador Matthews. Thanks, Monica, and thanks, Bill, CIS, for having us here today. This is a, uh, always a good opportunity to talk about APEC, uh, the work that we're doing in APEC, what we hope to achieve. It's good to see Bob Wong here, my predecessor, another strong supporter of APEC. Uh, let me just say to all of you, um, you know, in this current role that I've had, uh, just like my predecessors, you know, we work with a broad interagency team in Washington. Uh, to carry forward work that reduces barriers to trade and investment uh, throughout the APEC region. It's really what everyone in APEC is dedicated to do, uh, and I think we are one of the more ambitious economies in pursuing those goals. Uh, this morning I'll talk to you a little bit about what our priorities are uh, in the Chilean host year for 2019, and we'll look a little bit uh, forward towards how we might begin grappling with uh, fourth industrial revolution type issues, actually some of which we're beginning to grapple with already, but we'll, of course we'll have to spend more time going forward. Um, of course, we don't really know exactly how uh, all the impacts of the fourth industrial revolution will unfold, uh, but it is really very clear that our response uh, in APEC must integrate the views of all stakeholders. And for us, that's always been public sector, private sector, and, uh, academia, civil society as well. But private sector, of course, uh, provides really critical input. And APEC has uh, identified one of its defining features is the intimate interaction in policy discussions between the private sector and, and government. I think it's been a critical element of uh, why APEC has succeeded as it has over the past 29 years. Um, in any case, uh, you know, it's an opportunity here at CIS to get this kind of interaction going forward. I'm glad to have a chance after the government shutdown to get everybody back out and thinking about these issues and uh, engaging. Uh, for us in APEC, uh, you know, it is important that APEC remain a leader uh, in tackling issues, uh, emerging issues that are involving ambitious and innovative ways that we can grapple uh, with means by which we can make markets uh, more open to ensure that there's a level playing field uh, and to uh, ensure that we have as free a flow of goods and services and uh, ideas and technology going forward because that is the basis upon which we can ensure uh, that we sustain healthy growth going forward. Last year we worked with Papua New Guinea uh, and other APEC partners to move forward critical priorities. That included the digital economy, services, competitiveness, structural reform, women's economic empowerment, and energy. Uh, we are pushing for an ambitious agenda in 2019 to advance these policy priorities, so I will begin by touching on a few of them. Uh, digital economy, Chile has identified it as a core priority for their host year. This is something the United States welcomes, uh, and it's outlined an ambitious uh, digital agenda for the year. We do live in a digital world, and the digital economy is helping fuel growth. 
2015, the digital economy was worth 3.5 trillion, up from 1.2 trillion in 2008, and that trend continues. So it's clear that uh, as data flows increase, as their content uh, uh, contributes to the way businesses operate, we need to have the right structure uh, for the digital economy to ensure that growth remains robust. American companies are at the forefront of the digital ecosystem, uh, providing everything from innovative smart city solutions to communications infrastructure and cybersecurity. Uh, but businesses that stand to gain the most from the digital economy also face significant challenges, such as policies that force data localization or restrict cross-border data flows. Uh, we seek to ensure that APIC economies serve as the champions of open platforms for innovation, the free flow of data, and other market-based measures that lift up our economies. Uh, recognizing that different economies take different approaches to privacy, the APEC Cross-Border Privacy Rules System, or CDPR, uh, is a first-of-its-kind mechanism that creates a network of accessible markets, provides baseline on strong data protection standards, and enables enforcement cooperation in a way that I, we think uh, you know, will facilitate business while providing those uh, framework protections. The CBPR system has grown quickly over the last couple of years, and this year we continue to work to expand the number of APEC economies uh, that will participate in CBPR. Uh, it's clear that we need scale in order to make it relevant to business, and we're working hard to in find as many APEC economies as possible, as soon as possible, uh, to join the system. I think we're various levels, but we have 11 now. We hope that Chile will be joining in this year as well and a couple of other economies, so we're getting to that kind of critical mass. We will also hold digital trade policy dialogues in Chile, focusing on emerging uh, digital technologies that are changing the landscape of modern-day trade and commerce. On technologies ranging from blockchain to machine learning, 3D printing, these dialogues will allow uh, economies to hear from companies on how digital trade is enabling them to reach domestic international markets and bring more businesses into the economy. Uh, this business of using technology as a way of lowering barriers and making uh, international trade more inclusive is a kind of a critical goal that we hold in APEC. Services liberalization, this is something uh, that we've been working at for a good bit of time now. It's a vital area for economic growth and development. Uh, it is an area where barriers remain higher across APEC and where there's a lot more work to be done. So that just shows you where there's a lot more upscale potential uh, for future growth if we can bring those barriers down. Today, services account for more than three quarters of the U.S. labor force and more than three quarters of U.S. GDP and about a third of all of our exports. Services industry is projected to create 95% of all the jobs added between 2014 and 2024 in the United States. Uh, according to our Bureau of Labor Statistics. So financial services are a great example, uh, and greater openness and uniformity in laws governing credit markets would create a powerful tool to provide credit to deserving SMEs, uh, finance trade, and boost jobs. And that's one of the streams of work that we do under the finance ministers. We look for progress in that area going forward in 2019. APEC members need to embrace liberalization policies and revise outdated laws to promote a robust open and vibrant services market for APEC economies. This is something we've been working on since uh, these work streams were launched in 2015 during Philippines host year. And we believe it's key that we really get an ambitious set of outcomes uh, in 2019 in Chile along these lines. One of those things, of course, would be actually the, the application of a set of metrics, uh, the STRI or the uh, 
trade and services uh, index for restrictiveness in order to have economies have a clear evaluation of where they stand, what barriers they need to address if they want to help uh, move towards a more open system in trade and services. On structural reform, innovation drives economic growth and will be especially important for harnessing the potential benefits of the fourth industrial revolution. We promote regulatory environments that encourage entrepreneurs to innovate and try new ideas. This year, uh, we will be looking at how structural policies can unleash the potential of the digital economy and how they can support economic growth. Our work on structural reform, uh, including through the ease of doing business, efforts to cut red tape and costs, uh, making it easier for companies, especially small ones, uh, to do business by fostering an open and transparent economic environment across APEC and throughout the Asia-Pacific region is one of the key things that we are doing. Uh, and it's been a core area of success. Uh, the United States is also actively promoting the adoption of commercial international law tools and standards to better enable businesses, especially small and medium enterprises, to gain access uh, to finance and to con conduct cross-border business. We've had particular work being done on online dispute settlement, again, trying to address one of the barriers that small enterprises have to have a secure international environment which they can do business at low cost and resolving disputes, of course, is one of those things. We have many other measures as well. With regard to workforce competitiveness, uh, I think we all recognize that we can't meet our economic potential if we do not ensure that our workers have the right skills uh, for available jobs in the digital economy. We meet with business leaders all the time who tell us about the challenges they face in finding the right people with the right skills. That's why last year, well, we announced an initiative to expand apprenticeships and workforce training programs so people could earn while they learn. And it's also been a reason why we've been emphasizing uh, women in STEM, because it's been clear that there's a structural problem across all APEC economies that women are underrepresented in science, technology, engineering, and math. And it's just a given that if you're not drawing on the potential of women in these areas, we're not maximizing our potential for future growth. While America enjoys one of the world's greatest higher education systems, America and the APEC region need innovative solutions to educate work-ready next-generation workers. Uh, we will continue to work with businesses on workforce development to ensure that they have the best talent available. I expect we'll be doing more work in this area going forward. On energy, uh, access to energy and security, uh, secure energy sources has been crucial for the economic growth of all of our economies. It will continue to be so during the fourth industrial revolution. This year, we are working in APEC to promote U.S. energy policies, standards, and best practices that support energy security and sustainable uh, energy development. This work helps create and grow markets for high-tech, efficient, clean energy goods and services. We're also focused on removing impediments to financing projects and making renewable technologies more reliable and competitive. With regard to the fourth industrial revolution, uh, in APEC, uh, you know, the fourth industrial revolution for us is uh, something we're just beginning to really grapple with uh, beyond the work we've been doing in digital. It's a combination of technologies that are changing the way we live, the way we work, and participate in the economy. The close partnership between government, the private sector, and even civil society make APEC an ideal forum for discussing these issues. Simply put, the fourth industrial revolution refers to how a broad suite of emerging technologies like artificial intelligence, autonomous vehicles, biotechnology, the internet of things are merging with our physical lives. Whether it's ordering a cab, buying groceries, making a payment, any of these things can now be done remotely. Our workplaces and organizations are becoming smarter and more efficient. We can, are conducting uh, and connecting devices to enhance our supply chains and warehouse operations. 
the possibilities of billions of people connected to mobile devices with unprecedented processing power, storage capacity, and access to knowledge is really unlimited. Um, when it comes to artificial intelligence, I've drawn a couple of particular items. Uh, the U.S. 2017 National Security Strategy cites artificial intelligence as an emerging technology that is critical to the economic growth and security of the United States, but of course, for all of our economies in APEC. The World Economic Forum has characterized AI as the linchpin of the fourth industrial revolution. Already, uh, artificial intelligence is all around us from self-driving cars and drones to virtual assistants and software that translates or invests for us. AI technologies can provide uh, tremendous benefits to our economy, but we recognize uh, there are potential challenges. So, of course, it'll be important that APEC economies do not implement premature regulations that stifle innovation and close off information flows or market access. APEC can promote best practices on AI to work to remove barriers to AI innovation and help ensure that we have a workforce that can succeed in the AI economy. It is an area where U.S. leadership is essential and we intend to provide it. Biotechnology, when it comes to innovation in biotechnology, uh, you know, we are poised to use it to transform nearly every sector of our economy, including agriculture, energy, manufacturing, and medicine. Advances in synthetic biology and genome editing technologies, for example, offer opportunities for U.S. leadership in APEC and innovative sectors like precision medicine and agricultural biotechnology. However, as with many engineering emerging technologies, we must balance the potential benefits of these technologies with the potential risks their misuse uh, could have, both intentional and unintentional. We believe that APEC is an ideal venue uh, to have these important discussions. In closing, um, you know, I look forward to today's discussion as it again embodies the close collaboration between government, private sector, uh, academia, think tanks, and other stakeholders that will in APEC, enable APEC to influence the development very positively uh, of the fourth industrial revolution. Uh, and the United States, of course, I think has a responsibility to ensure that we're injecting our commitment to the free flow of ideas, data, and technological up applications, just as we have been working assiduously over the last 29 years uh, to ensure the free flow of goods and services, as well as capital. So again, with that, uh, I look forward to the future discussion from the panel and questions from all of you. Thanks. All right, if the panel will come up, we'll begin this part of it. There's a stairway over here. <laughs> when, Wendy, why don't you come down here okay. and sit next to me? Wendy here, Ambassador. That way I can poke you if you say anything. I'm Ambassador, why don't you? And then okay. David, and we'll put uh, the two of you question. Why we didn't sit when we came in? Well, thank you, Ambassador, uh, for those remarks. That gets us off to a good start. Um, I'm going to introduce uh, the other members of the panel, and they have been uh, had their arms twisted into agreeing to make some brief remarks, and then we're going to have a, a conversation. And I think since they come from different perspectives, uh, I think you'll get uh, a, a good range of, of views and provide a lot of uh, meat for a good discussion afterwards. Uh, on my immediate left is Wendy Cutler, <clears throat> who is currently the Vice President and Managing Director of the Asia Society Policy Institute. Uh, an organization that, uh, where she's committed, among other things, to 
uh, raise its Washington uh, visibility uh, because it's historically a New York organization, as I recall. And she has certainly done that. I can tell you that I'm jealous every week when I see all the stuff that they're doing that, that we're not doing. So um, now we're doing she, together. yeah, <laughs> now we're yes, now we're here together. Uh, <clears throat> most of you probably know Wendy as having had a, a long and, and illustrious career of nearly 30 years as a diplomat in the office of the U.S. Trade Representative. She concluded her service as the acting deputy USTR, uh, spent a huge amount of her time on Asia-Pacific issues. Uh, she's the one who is responsible for, or should take the blame for, TPP, depending upon your point of view. Uh, from my point of view, it's to her great credit. Uh, and uh, one of the questions we may get into later on is, is uh, prospects um, for that. That's something we can think about. That's kind of off topic, but keep in mind, she was also the chief negotiator for the U.S.-Korea Free Trade Agreement. So we have a real veteran negotiator, negotiator with us as well. Uh, next to her is uh, Ambassador Ashok Mercury, who is the ambassador to the Republic of Singapore and is one of the longest serving ambassadors in town, as was his predecessor, as I recall. Um, he's been in Washington since uh, the summer of 2012, uh, which is a significant uh, length of service. And prior to that, uh, uh, he served as ambassador to Indonesia, uh, high commissioner to Malaysia, and high commissioner to Australia. He is a career diplomat who has a more than 30 year uh, history of service to, uh, to his country. And it's a real honor for us to have him here. He's been very active in the diplomatic community. And uh, those of you that follow Asia issues, no doubt have run into him on many other occasions, as, uh, either as the main speaker or as a panelist. Finally, um, it wouldn't be a panel on 4IR and digital governance if we didn't have somebody who comes from directly that sector. And it's a great uh, privilege for me to introduce David Weller, uh, who is the head of global trade policy for Google. Uh, prior to joining uh, Google, he was a, uh, well, he still is an attorney. <laughs> he was a partner at Wilmer Hale, uh, and before that, he was at, at USTR as deputy assistant USTR for China and also as assistant uh, general counsel. He was their chief legal advisor on China trade issues uh, and the chief lawyer for negotiations for free trade agreements with Morocco and Bahrain has also done WTO work uh, and speaks Chinese, which is a significant accomplishment in my view. Uh, in any event, it's a distinguished panel with, uh, I think, different perspectives. Uh, and so I'm going to ask them each to talk a little bit uh, briefly, and then we'll have a conversation amongst ourselves, turn it over to you all. So Wendy, take it away. Well, um, first, thanks so much, Bill, for inviting me um, to join the panel. It's, it's really an incredible panel, and I've worked a long time with, I think, everyone um, on the panel, so it is an honor for me. Um, before I say anything, I just want to really extend my congratulations and my really deep appreciation to Ambassador Matt Matthews. I think he's now ending his really third year working on the APEC portfolio. He's done an amazing job with this portfolio. I think you've encountered a number of challenges um, <laughs> over the years. To put it mildly. Um, but really, hats off to you, and thanks for your public service. Um, you know, when I think of APEC, first I'm going to tell a story. Some of you may have heard this before. I first heard about APEC in the mid-'90s when I was working at USTR. At that time, I was working on US-Japan trade war negotiations. And the APEC team came home, and they were so excited about APEC. It had been elevated to the leader's level. 
and they agreed on what was called at that time the Bogor Goals, and that called for free and open trade in the Asia Pacific by the year 2010. Well, that was about 15 years you know, from the point when I first heard about it, and I was thinking, wow, I really feel for that poor person at USTR who's in charge of the APEC portfolio <laughs> in 2010. And guess what? It was me. <laughs> Um, but I rolled with the punches, and by that time, I really had become a true believer in APEC. I mean, APEC, a lot of people, you know, they think of the shirts, um, the crazy shirts that, you know, leaders wear every year. I think this past year, APEC got a bad rap because for the first time, it didn't agree on a leader statement. A lot of people thought that this was just a manifestation of the U.S.-China trade dispute kind of taking over APEC um, in the PNG year. Um, but I think it really overshadowed a lot of the good work that APEC is conducting. I don't know why the lights are going down. <laughs> um, Matt did an incredible job kind of going through the APEC portfolio. What I want to just briefly talk about is the fact that APEC plays and has played such an instrumental role in really identifying um, introducing, raising the comfort level, and addressing kind of what we would call these evolving and emerging issues in the international trading system. What we find in trade negotiations, when you're sitting across the table and you want to include provisions, you know, binding, they're going to be enforceable, countries become nervous, and particularly when you're asking them to adopt new rules in areas that they don't know a lot about. And that's where APEC plays such an incredible and important role in being able to introduce these issues in kind of a non-threatening and non-confrontational atmosphere. Um, before I get to the digital and fourth industrial revolution um, kind of agenda, I just wanted to share with you kind of another set of issues where I really think we made great strides in APEC. And that has to deal with the issue of good regulatory practices. I remember during our host year in 2011 of APEC, we introduced what was called the GRP portion of the agenda for APEC. And a lot of countries were very skeptical. What are you asking us to do here with respect to good regulatory practices? And one of the issues we were pushing then was the issue of the of public consultation, providing the opportunity for the public to comment on regulations as they were being developed and the notion that you would continue reviewing the efficacy of, of, of regulations once in place. And I think through a number of kind of efforts, we were able to really put that agenda front and center on the APEC agenda, and that subsequently really has really become an integral part of binding and enforceable trade agreements. And we were able to do this through a number of avenues, and I think this really applies to the topic at hand today. And that is by having regulator-to-regulator -regulator discussions. We didn't just have trade people talking about this. We brought in the actual regulators so they could share their experiences. Um, second, we would have seminars where people would talk about the benefits of good regulations and the benefits <coughs> of actually getting comments from the public and then adjusting your comments to re adjusting your regulations to reflect those comments. Um, we also developed what are called case studies, where certain countries would 
you know, share with others their experiences in developing good regulatory practices. Um, and we also develop what are called kind of best practices um, in the field. And I think all of these mechanisms and probably others are very relevant um, to this discussion at hand today, the fourth industrial revolution. Um, as Matt mentioned, APEC is doing good work in this area with respect to data privacy, digital, and beginning to work on artificial intelligence. Um, I think looking ahead, APEC has just an enormous and potentially really important role to play um, in this space um, for four reasons. One, um, I think it has a unique membership um, of the 21 economies. There are a lot of leading economies in these technologies. Second, it has a lot of committees, as Matt mentioned. And so I think when you talk about the fourth industrial revolution, you're not just talking about trade issues. You're talking about economic issues. You're talking about workforce issues. You're talking about gender issues. And APEC has the ability with all these different committees to really look at the different aspects um, of these technologies. Third, and I think Monica Whaley is really the, the demonstration of this, there is such a close relationship between the business community in APEC's agenda. And I really think in this area, governments really need to look to the business community. Um, and fourth, I would say, we have really three strong hosts of APEC coming up. This year is the Chile year. Someone help me, next year is New Zealand Malaysia. and Malaysia. Malaysia. Malaysia and then New Zealand. And then New Zealand. And I think that's really important um, for any agenda to really unfold in APEC. It's important to have strong hosts that build on each other's accomplishments each year. So I'm just going to conclude and just make two recommendations um, that maybe we can discuss more um, on the panel as we look at the fourth industrial revolution. And that would be number one, that maybe APEC, maybe next year or the year after, should just call it one theme. Forget having four or five themes for the year and 20 sub-themes, but just have one theme, the fourth industrial um, economic revolution and have all the different committees kind of doing work in those areas then with kind of one overarching theme and then deliverables all relating to that theme. And second, with response to the business community, I think it's really important that APEC find a different structure as it looks, and I don't want to say structure, but a different mechanism as it looks to, to seek input from the business community, and that is there's so many entrepreneurs in Asia in this field, um, and sometimes I think that the, the existing structure, the ABAC structure um, in APEC really um, is comprised of a lot of folks at the end of their careers, um, very senior business folks, and maybe APEC and ABAC should look at trying to come, trying to assemble and convene more entrepreneurs, which could really help provide the type of business input that would be needed for this evolving agenda. Thank you. Okay, Ambassador. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me here, and I'll try to offer a Singapore perspective on where the digital economy is going and the role that governments have to play and APEC has to play. I think it's obvious why the digital economy is a subject for discussion. All the economic numbers show how important it's becoming and how important it will continue to be. 
There are two things that have emerged as we sort of anticipate how to deal with a digital economy. is the whole issue of trust and the issue of scale. And these really go hand in hand because the most trustworthy system is the one that you keep as closed as possible. And that is what you have trust. But then the whole issue around growing the digital economy comes one of scale. And it's straddling these two that's become quite important because trust in the system is how do you add more value added activities that take place over the internet? How do you handle things like personal information? People are very, very skeptical and suspicious about this. How do you handle financial transactions? And how do you do the necessary data exchanges around many of these things? And so much of these issues around trust take place within national boundaries, because that's where the role of governments come in, dealing with evolving technologies, dealing with these new tools. Most governments then start looking at it in a very domestic context, because that's the expectation of their population. That's the expectation of the consumer. That's the expectation of businesses. And sometimes there's a temptation then to overregulate because you don't want to get it wrong. How do you respond to your public if you over open up the, the system and you suddenly have a massive cyber hack, you have loss of personal information and things can go wrong. So we're dealing with domestic regulatory environments. Yet on the other hand, you have this issue of scale and an issue for scale, particularly for a economy like Singapore with five and a half million people. The scale means you have to have region-wide region sort of opportunities, region-wide business uh, activities that cross geographical borders and how do you achieve this scale in this globally connected world so it's that's where Singapore really looks at this issue of getting data protection standards that enable data to be exchanged in a responsible fashion yet while maintaining trust and that's where we see a very important role for APEC coming in to be able to play this as Wendy had so uh, well outlined APEC's got a very unique trait it's a group of non-binding, voluntary countries that come together that allow for an open and constructive dialogue among governments to exchange best practices, engage in this capacity building, and see policy ideas. The 25 years that APEC has been working on many of these issues, that's where so many of these ideas have come in. It's a really an, an interesting platform where you can incubate ideas and concepts without necessarily making hard commitments. And if you're not quite ready to make some of these hard commitments, at least you may be seeing others pointing the way towards where this, this may go. So you have smaller groups that come together within APEC in order to almost pathfind the way forward. And one very unique thing about APEC, it is the only regional organization that includes the world's first and second largest economies. You have the US and China in it. You know, it is a fairly unique thing given how important these two economies are going to be in the digital economy. And how can we then lay out the rules that allow a lot of cooperation within this framework of 21 countries that includes such significant countries. So this concrete example that we are speaking about today that uh, I wanted to address is this APEC cross border privacy rule system, CPBR. It's a multilateral certification mechanism that set up a harmonized set of data standards across the Asia Pacific to facilitate these data transfers. It's voluntary, but it's enforceable standards that will overall lift the standards for privacy protection in the region. It also creates an international mechanism to facilitate these cross-border flows that we talk about operating 
understanding, going back to that first point about the role of sovereign governments across a patchwork of networks. You're not going to have an even sort of uh, rules and regulations across all 21 uh, APEC countries. You're going to have a patchwork of that. The CBPR comes on top of that and then allows countries to trade and allows businesses to trade. It does not force anyone to change your domestic law. It does not force you to change your regulation, but tries to accommodate the whole range of regulatory systems across the Asia-Pacific and bring members up to this common standard. And where there are different levels of readiness, as they have to be in such a diverse group as in APEC, the CBPR puts people on the path towards in, uh, ensuring sufficient protection without hampering trade and slowing down economic growth. So in February 2018, about a year ago, Singapore became the sixth country to participate in CBPR after the US, Mexico, Canada, Japan, and South Korea. There's also the Privacy Recognition for Processor System, the PRP, of which Singapore and the US are both participating in. And imagine the potential if we can get all 21 APEC economies into this, into that, into this whole process. But there's more that we can do beyond just APEC. And you can, we can get into discussion later in the dialogue of what else we can do in APEC. What Singapore is also doing is things like the CPTPP. There was a brief reference to TPP just now, Bill. Singapore has signed and ratified the CPTPP. It came into force at the end of last year. The commission met last month. And it has an ambitious e-commerce chapter, prohibiting the localization of computing facilities and data flows. It was an important precursor in updating NAFTA, and now the USMCA has built on the CPTPP provisions for an even stronger chapter to support digital trade. So the, there is movement on all these areas. And even in the WTO, Singapore is working with Australia and Japan as co-conveners to help lead a frame, an exploratory framework on the foundation on the WTO negotiations on e-commerce. And we want as many WTO members to participate in. So there's global sort of cooperation, there's regional cooperation, and then there's cooperation within the Asia-Pacific, within the CPTPP. What Singapore is also doing, and this refers to that fourth industrial revolution everyone is so excited or concerned about, is we've, in order to guide private sector organizations, we've introduced a model our AI governance framework. One of my ministers was at the World Economic Forum last month and put this out there as a model framework for discussion. It provides the private sector with some guidance on how to address key ethical and governance issues when deploying AI solutions. It's meant to be a living document. It's a model. It takes into account, as Wendy says, getting industry feedback as AI evolves and as more cases develop. And it's guided by trying to make AI much more explainable to people, transparent and fair, when also making sure that AI solutions become a lot more human-centric. And that's where some, we see some of these data areas coming in. We are partnering with the World Economic Forum Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution in order to drive this data uh, and AI innovation and engage more organizations in this. And we want to initiate more views and discussions around how do we do AI. In Singapore itself, we're starting a national digital identity system. So there's, there's more seamless digital transactions within citizens. And within ASEAN itself, Singapore was the chair of ASEAN in 2018. We led the launch of the ASEAN framework for digital data governance, which should achieve more regulatory alignment in data regulations within this region of 10 countries and foster much more data-driven innovation. 
So Singapore looks forward to being able to contribute to global technology governance, even as we're trying to understand the new technologies, the frontier technologies, we also need the sensible tools. And we see opportunities like this to discuss this and take back new ideas in order that our negotiators, as they go forward in areas like APEC, see an opportunity to engage with industry and see how they can make a framework that works much better in the region. Thank you. Thank you. David? Great. Well, thanks so much for having me. And it's, it's an honor to, to follow Wendy and Ambassador Mapuri. Um, one, one of the first ways that I learned trade ropes in, in Washington, D.C. Was, was as Wendy's lawyer at USTR. So it's he a privilege to be on the stage <laughs> sometimes. Um, Anyway, thank, thank you so much. I think this is a really important um, and timely conversation. And, and it's interesting because um, I think there are a couple of different themes running, running throughout the comments um, that we've heard and also um, part of the trade moment that we're in now. I think one key theme is really um, kind of the political angst and turmoil around trade. Um, the backlash that we've had around trade and trade integration over the past uh, several years. Uh, and the second is um, uh, adjustment to uh, new digital technologies uh, transforming all parts of, of the economy. And in some ways, I think bo both of these um, themes are challenging or developments uh, are challenging ones. Um, but there's also a way that the two actually interact in a very positive way, and each, in a way, offers a solution to the other. So I just want to talk a little bit about that and how I think APEC fits in. I, I think in terms of sort of the trade backlash that we've been feeling, I think a lot of the, uh, the core issues that we've experienced in the U.S. and many economies throughout APEC has been the question, not so much of whether trade is a positive thing, but who trade is benefiting. Who can participate in, in trade? Um, who are the stakeholders of, of trade? Um, and I think there was, uh, there's been a feeling for many years, I think partly true, um, that the trading system has been you know, largely dominated by very large players, both countries and companies, um, that you needed a certain amount of capital uh, and scale and reach to succeed in global trade, and that those um, players were the primary beneficiaries um, uh, of trade. Um, and I think in the digital space, we've also had a, a question of how do we make digital technologies, which I think everyone acknowledges have tremendous, tremendous power, but how do we ensure that they can deliver results broadly to our societies and, and improve standards of living? And, and look, these are both rich, broad topics. We're not, I'm not going to talk about all of them. Um, but I think you can, part of the reason for the enthusiasm from Papua New Guinea to Chile, two radically different economies, um, part of the reason for their interest in highlighting digital uh, and inclusive trade as a top priority for APEC is the realization that if we get digital trade right and the rules for the digital economy right, um, it can actually solve both of those problems, or at least help contribute to solving both of those problems. Um, and let me, let me talk a bit about, about the trade piece. Um, and Ambassador Mirpuri uh, men mentioned this uh, a, a bit as well. The 
digital tools, and, and sorry, I will try not to be um, Silicon Valley utopian here, mm -hmm. um, but uh, really do offer the promise of leveling the playing field in, a, in, in some very important ways uh, in, in trade and allowing SMEs in particular, which, which again, both Papua New Guinea and Chile have highlighted as kind of key APEC themes, allowing them to punch well beyond their, their weight. Um, and that's sort of, I'll just highlight two ways that happens. One is, is reducing the frictions of, of, of trade. Um, and you know, to, to give a couple of examples within that, information asymmetries, right? Classically, it was big firms who uh, could have uh, global networks who were able to understand markets better, um, uh, understand opportunities uh, better, and the internet obviously has radically democratized information. Um, the second is distance, and, and in, in many cases, geography used to be destiny. Um, and geography still does matter, but the internet really has broken down the significance of geography pretty significantly. And you know, the great statistics, which, which you often hear from from some studies that eBay did, is you know. The typical business on an eBay platform, small business on eBay platform, 90% of the more than 90% of those businesses are exporting, and you know their offline counterparts are in the low single digits of, of exports. So I think that's just one example. Another example is uh, Google uh, Google AdWords, Google ads that appear next to search results. Small businesses in the U.S. use that tool to to reach many many new customers. If you look at small businesses using that tool in the U.S., more than a, more than um, uh, a third of those clicks um, uh, on those ads come from outside the U.S. Um, small businesses that before were were only reaching people within their driving distance are are, are reaching global. Um, the second is the ability of, of small businesses and others to deploy new cutting-edge technologies that before again. You know, companies with that could have formed, you know, large mainframe computers were able to do. So, we think of AI sometimes as okay. You know, there's just a handful of companies globally that are sort of on the cutting edge of, of global AI research, and that's sometimes sort of the story. I mean, one, there's that's not exactly right. There are many, many people engaged in AI research, but two, through the cloud, you have businesses of all different sizes. Um, using the fruits of AI. Someone mentioned earlier Translate, right? So Translate, and the reason Translate is so good right now and has gotten so much better is because of artificial intelligence. If any business can incorporate now Translate tools onto their website at either free or very low cost, all powered by AI, um, by working through the cloud. Similarly, advanced data analytics to understand you know, customer demand or, or uh, you know, analytics on their website, which AI greatly improves. Again, that's not three companies who are able to do that. You know, any company that has access to the cloud is able to do that today. Um, so, you know, how does this relate to APEC? Um, I'm sure we'll talk about this a, a bit more later, but I think Wendy's point is exactly right. These are cutting edge issues that governments are not always uh, willing and ready to move immediately to binding trade agreement provisions. Many of the issues also that we're talking about are not classic trade rule issues, right? They're issues, as Ambassador Mapuri said, of trust, um, issues of regulatory approaches, which trade agreements can get into to some degree, but they're not really the place to get into kind of 
what are best practices, um, at least in kind of the binding portion of, of, of trade agreements. And so APEC really offers a way to do this. Um, and I would just highlight kind of three buckets, and, and maybe we'll have time to talk about uh, them some more, some more later, Bill. The, the first is, is more in kind of the classic uh, uh, trade, uh, trade rule kind of context of trade rules of, you know, thou shalt not. Um, and I think through the leadership of, of Singapore uh, and others, we have already started to take those steps in, in CPTPP and now in, NAF, in, in USMCA, the updated uh, NAFTA, but bringing forward the core disciplines of non-discrimination, of, of not restricting transfers at, at borders and bringing them to the digital economy. So that means information movement, having similar default of openness for that. Um, not trying to impose customs duties on movement of information and, and digital, digital products. Those, those would be two examples. The second, um, second kind of cone is really establishing strong systems of trust um, that are interoperable across countries. And I think you put it very nicely, Ambassador, um, this, this tension between um, kind of scale and, and trust. Um, and ultimately, if we approach digital trade issues, as well as digital trust issues, as national issues, we will all fail. I mean, the, the, the beauty of the internet, um, right, is breaking down the significance of borders in a trade context and allowing for much greater openness and interaction. Um, and if, if we all go into our own silos and approach the same issues that, we, that most societies and governments care about, privacy, security, um, these uh, 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 sort of innovation-oriented approaches to information availability, all these questions, um, even if you're all pursuing the same goal but you're doing it in 10 different ways and you're not thinking about interoperability, the system doesn't work. The scale that you talked about will never be achieved. And I think that's where the CBPR system you talked about has, has started to plug an important hole and there's a lot more work that can be done. And then the, the, just the, the third um, category that I'll mention is the need to promote conditions um, that are going to enable ongoing innovation and development of new technologies. What are the domestic legal and regulatory frameworks that we need in terms of promoting skills training, skills access, from ensuring that um, uh, property rights and copyright, for instance, is adequately protected, but also allows ongoing innovation. Singapore has been kind of probably the great example uh, with, the, with the United States um, of how to balance those interests to make sure there's strong intellectual property protection, but also allow ongoing innovation and new uses of, of knowledge, like in your new fair use law. So those are just three, three items that I would uh, mention and look forward to look forward to the discussion. I guess just the ver the very last note I, I, I would uh, I would end with is um, uh, to, to 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 echo the plug of Wendy and Monica and others that that APEC um, uh, should not be dismissed um, and that there's you know for the kinds of problems that we're dealing with today APEC. Um, is really provides kind of the right range of economies and the right approach on issues um, that, it's, that it's worth some investment for all of us. So thanks, Bill. Okay, thank you. That's a lot of good uh, topics to discuss, and I'm sure the audience is going to have a 
a bunch of questions about that, about many of them. Let me start with sort of a 40,000-meter um, question, and maybe we can drill down a little bit beyond that. I think in some quarters, there's a tendency not so much to dismiss APEC, but to uh, ignore it in, in, uh, in, and instead focus on uh, negotiations that produce rules and, uh, and uh, mandatory things, free trade agreements or regional trade agreements or whatever. Um, you all, have, in different ways, have put, out a, a, have, have put out a very interesting thought, which is, A, that's wrong, but B, that in a way, from that perspective, uh, APEC's weakness is its greatest strength. That uh, the fact that it is non-binding, that the, the things it does are non-binding, are voluntary, and our best practices, rather than rules, uh, provides a safe, if you will, forum for countries to get together and to develop uh, best practices. Um, I guess the question is, and you know, a lot of people say, well, it's, you know, the organization is weak because that's all it does. What you're really saying is that what that is is very important and that it makes the organization a lot stronger than people think it is. Is the right, thinking about apex evolution in the future, uh, is the right answer for them to just keep on doing that uh, particularly in the areas that, that David outlined going forward, or should we be talking about uh, trying to uh, transform APEC into, if you will, into more of a regional trade organization or a regional trade group that will go beyond best practices and try to negotiate rules, or is that, would that in effect, uh, you know, take away the advantage that it provides now? Who wants it, Monica? You're, Ambassador, who goes Ambassador, why don't you I might just comment briefly. I mean, I think it's absolutely critical that APEC maintains its non-binding nature. Uh, and it's critical because it's the only way in which you can encourage economies to think uh, and engage ambitiously in exploring how you can go about creating the best practices, which ultimately any economy can use in a binding negotiation at a later date. But in order to get people to have the freedom to think creatively and to do a little risk taking in modeling best principles against their own economy's performance. You only can do that in a non-binding environment. So there's plenty of opportunities elsewhere to actually get into binding negotiations. And a danger for APEC is when people begin to think of APEC as an opportunity to, prepare, to do the preparatory work for a binding negotiation. I think that's one reason why uh, we've had as much difficulty moving forward on the work we're trying to do to raise standards across the various areas that would be relevant to an FTAP. In APAC, we need to be able to do the work of thinking through what general scope of best practices might be, but not actually be uh, thinking that this is the first step in a negotiation. That's got to be done separately in a completely separate undertaking um, and by whatever group of economies want to engage in it. Um, but we will lose the ambitiousness, we will lose the creativity, that incubator status, if we actually uh, stepped away from a non-binding commitment. Monica, you agree? I, I absolutely agree. The, <clears throat> excuse me. One of the things I think that was so um, disappointing in some ways about people's focus on the fact that in PNG, the final leader's statement was not finally agreed, was not that there is not agreement on APEC on how to go forward. In all of the things that Ambassador Matthews talked about, all the different work areas of APEC, 
There are volumes of things that APEC is going forward on very pragmatic steps, making things happen, doing demonstration projects, doing capacity building projects, coming up with principles and, and best practices that sort of belie the, the need for um, coming up with a leader's statement on something that actually didn't have to do with APEC at all. Um, or the, the conflict didn't have to do with APEC at all. So their APEC itself actually had a very strong program that was moving forward of, upon which there's 21 economy agreements. And that's very rare and part of the reason is because of APEC's nature of being able to work collaboratively on things, to try something out, to let three or four go forward and try something and see how it works out, continually evolving and changing. I think that's a critical piece of the puzzle. Well, okay, let's pursue that for a minute. Maybe David wants to comment on this or the others. I was struck not so much by the lack of agreement in the PNG, but by the uh, progress uh, of the cross-border privacy rules. So here you've got a significant accomplishment, I think, of what, a couple years ago, uh, and you've got maybe half signed up, a little less than half signed up, uh, why hasn't that moved faster? Why, aren't, why hasn't everybody signed up if they all agreed on these things in the first place? Yeah, so, you know, I guess it depends on what your, um, what your kind of baseline is for fast. Uh, <laughs> you know, this is the world of trade negotiations, so okay. When I, when I talk to, you know, uh, colleagues in, in business colleagues in California about uh, various different movements in, in trade and talk about the celebrations that, you know, governments this year have announced their intent to negotiate and last year they said their interest to negotiate and we, and we stand up and uh, have a party. Um, you know, I think there, there is a difference in, expect, uh, in expectations. So yes, for your typical business person, you might say this is all pretty slow, but in terms of you know, governments signing on to a, a system of um, uh, uh, how privacy rules are enforced in a cross-border context, that's, that's a complicated, sensitive set of issues. So I guess I disagree with the characterization. I mean, this is a system that was birthed three years ago, um, and, uh, you know, you have um, more than a half a dozen countries signed up. Uh, with with uh, uh, several others in the wings. So I actually think it's been pretty fast. I guess the other point, just to kind of link that question to your prior question, is, um, you know, APEC has often been a breeding ground for ideas that do end up in the bonding agreements, right? So there is this kind of crossover mechanism. So if you look at the CBPR system that we're talking about, the, the USMCA, um, uh, that was just signed explicitly references this system and endorses it as a um, uh, uh, kind of permissible system that governments should recognize for uh, the movement of information. So those, that system wasn't birthed in the context of a, of, you know, a binding uh, trade negotiation or body, but it's reflected there. Um, you know, the genesis of the ITA and, and its ideas, you know, sort of a, a brainchild within, uh, 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 within APEC is, is another example. So I guess I would say, you know, you could look at it at as a, uh, CBPR as a glass half empty, but I actually think it's moved pretty fast and we're already seeing it port into, into binding trade rules. Wendy? Yeah, so just a, um, a couple of points. One is that 
um, in addition to the important work that APEC did on ITA1 in the information technology agreement, then you know, leading to the ultimate um, well, WTO agreement, let's not forget the important negotiating work that APEC did in um, our host year um, in 2011 on the environmental goods agreement where everyone agreed to lower their tariffs on a discrete list of environmental good products to 5% or lower. And that was a negotiation in APEC. It succeeded. Um, my understanding is it's pretty widely implemented. And while that negotiation then moved to the WTO, the WTO plurilateral hasn't been able to, you know, to move forward. So I think that APEC can do both. Um, but I agree with, um, with Matt that it's, it's kind of at the core of it, it's kind of that voluntary kind of non-binding approach is key. But I think on discrete issues, it can successfully um, negotiate agreements. Also, I would just kind of comment on having um, been responsible for the APEC portfolio during the TPP negotiations. And that is that let's remember that some APEC members were TPP members, but most weren't. And so at the same time, we were negotiating binding commitments with a subset of APEC members. Other APEC members wanted, number one, to um, understand what we were negotiating. So APEC provided an important transparency function where we briefed the other members um, on what we were doing. Um, but also, a lot of those members weren't ready for those binding commitments. So they welcomed work in those areas um, to help them kind of get up the learning curve so maybe at some point they could accede to the TPP um, in the future. So in some ways, there's a lot of synergy between kind of both models, and I don't think it's an either-or proposition. If I can, it, it's always good to keep asking ourselves, why are we attending another leader summit every year? And there's, as Monica said at the start, there's been a proliferation of them. There's been the G20, there's the G7. But APEC plays this very unique role within the Asia-Pacific. You have to remember the economic and geographical diversity of the APEC countries. And Indonesia, that's just geographically wide as the United States, yet in a very different sort of you know, a sort of archipelagic nation with 16,000 islands, to have them reach up to those standards overnight is just not practical. Yet, you have countries like the United States, countries like Singapore, Australia, that want to really move quickly ahead, that want to create legal frameworks. Do we leave these people behind and say, you're not good enough to be part of us? Or do we create an, an architecture that says, there is a future roadmap for you? You are going to be part of this thing one day when you're ready. The dream was we're going to come to a free trade area of the Asia Pacific. When we're doing the TPP and RCEP negotiations, in the end, everything will be put together. In some far distant future, it's going to come together. But meanwhile, we need to help move countries along. And recognizing the diversity, recognizing the difficulty some countries have of dealing with these things, both domestically and then regionally, signing legal binding agreements in them, I think that's where APEC sort of then provides these roadmaps, as Wendy gave the example of TPP. The non-TPP countries that were part of APEC were very interested to stay connected with it, even knowing that it may take them 20 years to be part of TPP standards. But they knew that as they start reforming their economies domestically, this is a roadmap for them. 
So if you are a country not part of the CBPR today and you want to look at the digital economy in 2020 or 2025, this is already a roadmap for you to follow. You may not follow everything completely, but it is there and it is purpose made for you in the region. I think that's a very important role for APEC, aside from leaders coming together. Well, that's um, some excellent points. Let's pursue that uh, specifically with respect to uh, some digital issues. I thought Wendy's uh, mention of the environmental goods agreement, I think, was a really useful point about how you can take an organization like APAC and essentially globalize it and, and take the work that it does and turn it into, make it bigger and make it uh, relevant to everybody. Uh, I guess the question is, is, uh, is uh, digital trade, digital governance, privacy, the issues that, uh, and the 4IR issues that uh, all of you have been talking about, is that an appropriate place for this same kind of thing to happen? Here in APEC, you've got some of the world's leading innovators here in the United States and in a number of Asian countries. And it seems to me you've also got uh, leading adopters. Uh, a lot of uh, countries in Asia have been quick to pick up and use these technologies uh, in their daily lives, just ordinary people. Uh, not only having phones, but having you know electronic payment systems and all the things that have gone along with with 21st century technology. Yet at the same time, we seem to be having what worries people here at CSIS, where we've done some work on it, is is the fragmentation of the internet. You have uh, basically the United States and China and Europe, the EU, not all of Europe, the EU, uh, pursuing different sets of rules and different sets of guidelines for what uh, started out as kind of a universal uh, technolo technological structure. Um, is this an area where APEC can play a useful role? Uh, or is, are we too far down the road in, in, in fragmentation to, or balkanization might be a better word to prevent that from happening? Anybody? David or Monica? I'm, I'm happy, Take to, happy to start. I don't think we're too far down the road. I think um, uh, I think you have to take issues kind of one by one, and there are going to be some areas where there's more of an ability for convergence, and some areas that will probably be less. Um, you know, I, I think there is a bit of a, uh, and I know it's a popular one in the press, but a bit of a false view that somehow there are these kind of three blocks in the world of the approach to the internet. I think you have to look at issues uh, on a specific basis. I think, for instance, just to take um, uh, the US and, and the EU on, on, on privacy, um, uh, you know, both are very committed and care passionately about privacy. It's in our constitution. It's in the European Union's kind of founding human rights and other documents. We have taken different approaches to, to realizing those rights, but um, I, I don't think there's a fundamental difference in terms of whether your average American or European uh, citizen cares about those things. There are different cultural contexts and so forth, but um, the, the, the core interests that people care about um, are actually pretty common. And this kind of goes to my point earlier that we've had a lot of these conversations in purely national uh, silos. And so um, 
I think there's all the more need for uh, a place like APEC to try to develop these kind of interoperable standards. And I think this, the CBPR, we keep going back to it, but is it a great example of that? Um, countries do have very different privacy regimes. Um, but uh, using kind of a, a basic approach, which is essentially agreement upon standards, and then certification um, uh, to those standards is a core way that you can kind of bridge differences. And it's a time-honored approach in trade. It's how we deal with security for telecommunications devices. It's how we deal with health and safety in food. It's how we deal with you know, um, you know, electrical plugs and making sure they're safe even though they're designed in different ways across countries. So um, I, I certainly don't think it's too late. Uh, and um, if it is too late, then, uh, then I think we've lost a, a huge opportunity. I would say that this is a perfect example of where APEC's openness to dialogue with the private sector and the sharing of the experiences of the private sector can actually help guide us in the right direction on that. One of the things that the National Center has done every year since we started 25 years ago is have uh, an annual executive roundtable is toward the beginning of each year and say, look at this, the suite of issues that are facing APEC this year and where does the private sector weigh in on that. The next one happens to be in Atlanta on March 1st, um, and we're actually hosting the APEC Business Advisory Council, which has taken Wendy's view that we need to get younger people involved. There's a, a young entrepreneur. I'm coming to that Chinese in a minute. That was there. an interesting comment. <laughs> Um, no, actually, he, this young entrepreneur from Chinese Taipei sat at the table last at the last meeting and said, "Look at yourselves. You're all old." And, so they, <laughs> and they said, "Well, okay, yes, we are." So they identified that as a problem. But the APEC Business Advisory Council will be meeting in Atlanta, and we're doing our roundtable on the side. The senior officials from many of the APEC economies will be joining them to have a dialogue. So I think we have an opportunity there. And our whole theme is this enabling a digital society. So we're going to look at things like you know. Industries that have been very much disrupted by the digital society, or looking at you know how how tra it transform uh, transforms existing industries, or in changes um, the the uh, sorry, I'm looking at the agenda and getting mixed up. But the um, enabling trade in a digital society, how that affects the trade agenda, and how it digitizing services changes. Um, so anyway, that's something. You're all invited, but on March 1st, we're going to look at that and say that bring the private sector together with business from around the region, as well as um, government officials from around the region, and say where where do these things go from here? And I think it's not too late. It's it's definitely these are these are live conversations, um, and a lot of these, it, as the ambassador mentioned, the diversity of APEC. Each of these different economies is in a different place right now in, in implementing all of this or having it be implemented. Some of them may leapfrog some of these important technologies, and that will, will advance their, their growth and their, um, their societies. Some of these are issues that, uh, in many ways, end up being U.S.-China issues. Uh, not all of them, and, and U.S. and China are not the only parties. But we are in the middle of a negotiation right now with China on, on uh, issues relating to intellectual property, technology transfer, involuntary technology transfer might be a, an appropriate word for it, um, which I think underlie you know, some of the uh, disagreement over these issues in, in other fora as well. Um, I suppose I, I, we don't really need to get into a, a discussion of what's going to happen with the U.S.-China trade talks. That's, we have other people here that doing those events. But uh, is there a role for APEC to play in trying to 
take what right now is sort of a bilateral problem and uh, put it in, into a broader context and a broader forum, uh, or would that be a waste of time? I think actually it's better if APEC continues to focus on the fundamental work of APEC, let those bilateral discussions take place as they will. It's usually it's the opposite side of it. If there's something in APEC that can help those negotiators uh, think more creatively about how to approach a problem, they should do that. But APEC shouldn't be designed or redesigned to begin addressing uh, bilateral negotiations. But I'd be open to. Uh, well, maybe I can just take a little, take some issue with that, because I think APEC, just as it dealt with issues like good regulatory practices or trade facilitation in the old days, there are issues that are being, you know, discussed in in the context of the U.S.-China trade debate, dealing with state-led economies, and, it's, and some of them are just they're not unique to China. For example, the issue of state-owned enterprises. Maybe there's something APEC can do there. Um, maybe, you know, when it going back to kind of the list of tools APEC has by bringing people together, by having countries share their experiences when they privatize state-owned enterprises. Um, but anyway, I think that there is, there is an agenda for APEC to look at some of these practices, once again, in a non-threatening, non-controversial way, not looking to write trade rules in the area, binding trade rules, but to kind of help the conversation and to really kind of educate people about the pluses and minuses, benefits, um, you know, shortcomings, et cetera, on a whole range of issues. Let's, um, you said it's sort of non-controversial uh, non and non-threatening. Uh, actually, what Wendy did in her remarks, though, was say two things that I think are controversial and, and threatening, at least to old people like me. Uh, and she suggested, one, a single theme, rather than multiple themes uh, for uh, APEC annually. And second, uh, looking at, and uh, Monica's already commented on this, but I, let's go into it a little bit more, in a little bit more detail, uh, looking at the business APEC relationship, business government relationship, and, and try to uh, infuse new blood into it, let's put it that way. Now, I assume that was a comment not only about the United States, but about all countries. Oh, or yeah. not. Okay. Yeah, I mean, when I think of the ABAC members, probably some of our ABAC members are younger than a lot of them from the other countries, because a lot of other countries, well, you might want to just explain what ABAC is to the group. Sure. Yeah. The, the APEC Business Advisory Council, many of you know it, but there, um, it is a body that was established by APEC by the leaders officially, and the leaders named three executives for each economy to serve on the Business Advisory Council. The U.S. executives rotate fairly regularly. Some of the people from some of these economies have been there almost from the beginning and never have changed. Um, but we, we in Australia and Canada and others rotate fairly regularly who our ABAC members are. Um, a good example, though, of what ABAC did, I think, that really contributes to the conversation is back when uh, um, Peggy Johnson from Microsoft was one of the three ABAC members, and the issue of um, cross-border data flows came up and there was just a lot of hesitation, a lot of wariness. Um, what is the U.S. trying to do here? And, you know, it, it was the ability of someone like Peggy, who is very young and, and lively and could engage with these folks on a way that, that educated them on what cross-border data flows meant, how businesses couldn't really function without cross-border data flows, and use the example of connected cows um, to show that, you know, this is not just 
you know, big companies, big data companies in Silicon Valley getting together and, and ruling the world. This is, this is the way all of us are going to be doing business. The digital economy is just going to be the economy. And it took somebody like Peggy to be able to explain what that was and, and raise the comfort level um, in, within ABAC on cross-border data flows so that we could start to have the conversation about the privacy rules and other things that there was a, a rising level of confidence in the issue. But um, a lot of these folks have been on ABAC for a very long time, um, and some of them are more senior figures in their business communities, as you can imagine, if the president or prime minister is naming who is going to serve on something for the country. Often it is uh, someone who's sort of rather senior and distinguished. And um, so, so we've got some new blood coming in, and it's, it's quite exciting. And you'll hear from Jamie actually in Atlanta on March 1st if you're there. OK, what about, what about her first suggestion, that APEC try to narrow its focus on an annual basis to a single theme? So that's really something that's open to each host economy. They decide uh, how many themes they want to have, how they want to approach it, and other economies then try to accommodate them. Uh, and, and how do they decide that? It, 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 it's, it's driven by what their leader and senior ministers think is essential, uh, both from the point of view of their economy, but also what they think would be relevant in the broader context of APEC. And there are ongoing streams of work that they, you know, and they're numerous in APEC, so two or three uh, priorities is not unusual. Having kind of... Uh, you know, Wendy's idea of trying to link in more different ongoing activities with that theme is a good idea, though, yeah, I think, regardless. And so we've been talking about increasing these cross-cutting issues and addressing them across different parts of APEC to make sure we're grappling with all the various aspects of a challenge like digital economy, and it's a good idea. You know, I just want to add that don't forget there's, as I mentioned earlier, the diversity of these economies, which means that Papua New Guinea has really quite different priorities from New Zealand three years from now. And how do you match that in the way that you can have some continuity? So you take something like digital economy, put that into the agenda, but meanwhile you speak of something like women's empowerment, which is an issue that sort of really is important for every country. So you need to have some flexibility in that that allows for some forward-looking themes, but some themes that bind the other 21 together as well. So given that diversity, I would be a little bit more relaxed about it while saying, okay, let's at least have some forward-looking themes that we can take year on year, that we can lead towards, but also having issues that let those who haven't quite reached those standards to say, I can tick off a box being part of this conversation as well. I'll just say, I think APEC does get a bad rap um, when you start going through the agenda and there's just so many issues and I start rolling, all, you know, rolling over. So there is something to be said about you know, really limiting your priorities or your themes. I will say when we um, hosted APEC in 2011, when we had our internal conversations, we looked at this idea of having one theme. Um, we came up, we, we, we um, reached the conclusion, well, maybe not one, but three themes, and we really tried to cut off work or to kind of slow, or just not put priority on work in a lot of other areas for, you know, with the sole purpose of trying to achieve more in a few areas than really dilute a lot of outcomes um, you know, across the board. Okay, why don't we um, then turn to the audience at this point, which has been waiting patiently. I'll ask you to do two things, audience. One, identify yourself 
We have microphones, I think. Wait for the microphone. Three things. Identify yourself and ask a question. Don't give a speech. Way in the back. Woman had her hand up first. Uh, Rita Chen from Central News Agency, Taiwan. Uh, thank you for doing this. Uh, during the APEC meeting last year, the Taiwan's envoy, Morris Chan, met with Vice President Michael Pence. Uh, I'm just wondering the, if Ambassador Matthew, you would like to share any following information regarding that. And from United States' point of view, how and what Taiwan should do to make the FTA trade talk possible, like Singapore and Taiwan have the FTA, they make it down like a three, uh, few years ago. Thank you. Well, thank you. Uh, Morris Chang, of course, was a very um, experienced uh, business leader in Taiwan. He was a previous uh, envoy on behalf of uh, Taiwan's leader in 2006, I believe, and he, of course, did a really good job um, this past year in Papua New Guinea as well. He did meet with the vice president. He met with the deputy secretary of state as well and uh, a number of other leaders uh, and interacted, of course, in, in all of the uh, leaders' retreat uh, engagements. Uh, it's a critical, they're a critical partner, uh, great member economy in APAC. They're very constructive. They have a lot to contribute, especially on issues like digital economy, where they have tremendous expertise. And uh, we're glad to have them there. OK, right here in the front. Uh, Chris McRae, Norman McRae Foundation. So my daughter wants to be a fifth grade teacher and I'm trying to help her with the definition of three things in a sort of seven minute transcript form, one of which is Industrial Revolution 4. The other two are AI and digital cooperation or whatever uh, is meant by that by the UN and the SDGs. So my question is, is there actually a definition of what the four is in the Industrial Revolution 4? I mean, I know it's something to do with the Moore's Law of how things have doubled and have now got to maybe a trillion times more power the silicon chip and how that then impacts society and economy and all your models. But how, how do you define the four in Industrial Revolution 4? So it's, it's, not a ter it's not a term that I actually use. I think the WEF uses it. So I don't know if someone yeah. else, it's not a, it, well, it's I a, have a different term, but I don't know if, if someone else it's has It's a historical a, reference uh, to the, it's the fourth industrial revolution. The first was in the 1830s and the, you know, the development of, of mechanical looms and things like that. The second, I, I'm losing it here. The second was transportation innovations. Uh, Steam engine, well, steam engines, steamships, railroads, things like that. The third, I guess, well, transportation. It should be broader than that, uh, including air transportation. I guess the third is really is digital trade of the 90s. And looking at, the fourth is looking ahead to AI, the Internet of Things. And, and I think electricity that. is in there somewhere, too. Uh, Telephone, <laughs> electricity, yeah. It's an historical term. It's not a numerical. Sorry, to add to that, my father's work at The Economist, post-industrial revolution that started basically the moon landing. So, so at that time we had the industrial age and the post-industrial age. So the, there's at least more than one way of There's a different way of looking at it, yes. It's quite important if you're making that one of the main agendas to at least have different languages to translate towards this is the fashionable way right now, I guess, <laughs> is the best thing to say about it. All right, there was something else, right, uh, in the middle here, in the... Thank you. I'm Marilee, International Trade Today. 
Um, Mr. Weller, you talked about eBay sellers and all the exports that they do. Is there any place to talk about de minimis and harmonizing that um, as part of this discussion of digital trade? Yeah, so I'd actually defer to Monica, who can talk about that issue in the context of APEC. It's obviously been a very live issue in in the renegotiation of, of, of NAFTA and other trade contexts. But yes, APEC has for a long time had one of its pillars being trade facilitation, and, and <coughs> de minimis has been one of the issues that they've talked about for quite a long time within APEC's um, and A2C2, I'm going to forget what the acronym is, the Alliance for... Uh, I forget. I forget. You forget it too. Okay, <laughs> and then I feel better. Uh, it's, it's supply chain connectivity. That's yeah. uh, what the, several of the C's stand for. But um, it is. There's a, um, a the long time alliance? process of discussing the, the, the global APEC, APEC Alliance for Supply Chain Connectivity oh, okay. was abbreviated as A2C2 uh, for a long time, and we had uh, participation there from a lot of the U.S. Uh, companies, UPS, FedEx that have participated in that process and de minimis has been one of the issues they've been talking about. No hard and fast agreements, and, uh, but certainly, they, and Wendy, you, you may remember more than that. Okay, I so do. I think, although someone has to fact check, <laughs> um, I believe in, in our year, host year in 2011, we agreed to what's called a pathfinder on de minimis. Yes. A pathfinder is kind of agreement in APEC of a subset of APEC members would you know agree on a topic, and the idea is that they would agree, and over time, more members would join the you know the, that group of countries. I can't remember how many, um, and I can't even remember what was in that deal, but it was a really good one. If you give me your card, I'll find out what what we what it was and give you the detail the exact details on that. Well, it's a good candidate issue for for that, as you know from USMCA negotiations. Countries are all over the map. On, on de minimis in, in ways that are that make uh, I think things much more complicated than they need to be, um, and it it turns out to be a rather controversial domestic political issue too. It certainly has become, been one in Canada, uh, and at a slightly lower level, has been one here as well. Okay, uh, and the gentleman is yeah right there, the first one in the front. Yes. Hi, Ryan McFarland from Kroll & Mooring International. Thanks for a great uh, panel. My question um, kind of revolves, gets, getting back to the APEC CBPRs, I think this is a great example of an initiative within APEC that is voluntary, that is flexible, uh, and allows particularly SMEs and entrepreneurs really to take advantage of the internet. If we look at some of the competing visions, the uh, EU and the GDPRs, I think the, the big companies in the world will be able to figure it out. They'll be able to develop the compliance systems to meet the GDPR uh, standards. I think it's the SMEs and the entrepreneurs that will really kind of suffer from that. Um, I would just ask and direct my question towards Ambassador uh, Nupiri, but would welcome comments from the others. What can we be doing within APEC and otherwise to get some of your ASEAN neighbors to kind of look at the APEC CBPRs more closely? We see a lot of uh, countries in Southeast Asia kind of adopting the GDPR model. Are there things, are there arguments that we should be making, things that we should be doing within APEC to help um, promote the adoption of the APEC CBPRs, which I think uh, would be more helpful for SMEs, for entrepreneurs. I don't know if it's like a VHS and Betamax type of comparison, but how do we make sure that the APEC CBPRs doesn't uh, become the Betamax of the data privacy world? Yeah. You know, it, it's 
It's not a comparison. GDPR is really quite different and CBPR is quite different. They end up looking as if they are alternative options. And because the EU model becomes, you know, this is the rules and you have to follow these rules, it becomes a lot harder, as you say, for SMEs to follow some of these things, particularly in the region. So it would really be for national governments, as they participate in APEC meetings, to start understanding the value of the CBPR conversations. I think at the moment, you know, you've, you've got six of them already in there. How do we broaden that conversation is the key part of it. And we're trying to do some things within ASEAN as well this ASEAN digital governance sort of rules, so that in, in a sense they will all overlap with each other, that some of the ASEAN countries like Malaysia or a Vietnam or a Brunei can see that having joined CPTPP, being part of APEC, being part of ASEAN, we can move up to the CBPR standards. But so it's a process of almost education. And then creating a way that encourages people to come in rather than saying this is such an exclusive group and the standards are really, really high. I think using the strengths of APAC, the fact that it's voluntary, the fact that it's non-binding, the fact that there are a patchwork of uh, frameworks, and then using the strengths of that to promote CBPR as an alternative as countries are moving forward on this. And maybe even getting some of the business to say, this is really what we want to sign on to, even if our governments are not quite ready to do it. But it's a long process of you know, moving people forward. And that's always a challenge. David, you want to add anything? Or? Yeah, I guess I would just say on that, I think this also ties back to, to Wendy's point in terms of uh, you know, expanding the business voices that, that governments are hearing from in, in trade generally and, and, and specifically in this context. Um, as you said, you know the biggest companies are going to figure figure their ways, uh, you know, through this. Um, when you start to hear from smaller companies in Malaysia and Indonesia and Vietnam and elsewhere who, um, you know, are using various di digital platforms and tools to uh, uh, cultivate businesses all around the world and you know, when they're maybe, maybe at, you know, a million dollars in revenue or $500,000 in revenue, um, uh, they're, they're maybe not paying attention to the rules so much or just starting to, but when they hit that next step, you know, someone's going to come knocking at their door. Um, uh, they're going to start encountering compliance issues. And there have been some interesting studies on, on this. I think uh, DTMA2 at uh, the World Bank has done some interesting work on in Indian service suppliers um, who are facing problems in providing services uh, in Europe because they don't meet certain uh, requirements. Um, and once you elevate those kinds of stories, and it's not just people like me sitting on a panel, but um, you know the, the new the new the new ABAC uh, members or others that you're bringing into the fold who can who can really tell the stories of um, how the lack of an interoperable system um, is creating problems for them, that I think will then impel governments to act. This is just an editorial comment. I mean, this is not uniquely, but peculiarly important in these technologies. They are inherently universal and, and global, and they really cry out for um, a harmonized regulatory process, a, a, a global regulation, and we're not there. But uh, organizations like APEC, I think, can can move us in the right direction, which is what a lot of this has been about. 
Um, I think there was another one, yes, in the uh, back row. The gentleman with the white hair like mine. Let's go with <laughs> Thank you very much. At least we still have some. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Um, <laughs> Touche. Uh, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, Dave Snyder, American Property Casualty Insurance Association. Um, first, a, a request and then a question. The request is that we hope in the debates that you consider open uh, insurance markets for cyber risk insurance may be a key part of building the trust that I think everyone feels is essential. So that's the request. My question is, if we held this panel two years from now, how would you all define success? Well, there's a good question. Who wants to go first? <laughs> well, look, at, I could, there's a number of things that we're moving on. And like we've said, APEC is this iterative process, but we're, we should have uh, implementation of in trade and services, the, the, the competitive uh, services framework. We should have the metrics in place. Economies should be measuring themselves. Economies should be uh, designing how they can begin uh, identifying uh, the barriers in their own services sectors and how they want to address reducing them. That would be good. Uh, CBPR, I would like to see every economy uh, in APEC in it, but certainly uh, more than a majority actually formally involved. Uh, and then that providing uh, the kind of tipping point so that more private sector firms can begin signing up for it because it would then begin having the scale that makes it economically rational for them to do it. Uh, women in the economy, again, uh, Chile has highlighted this as a core area. What we want to see with the work that we're doing uh, in APEC is to actually eliminate the barriers uh, over time that have uh, either prevented women from entering the workforce or staying in the workforce and broadening that attention out to, uh, you know, across economies so that uh, there are no sectors where women are not welcome and there are no sectors where women cannot succeed because of policy impediments or because of uh, long-term kind of cultural uh, preferences that have uh, barred them from entry or, or successfully pursuing careers. I think that would all be uh, critical. And then again, on the digital economy side, I mean, I think we really do want to see the free flow of data. We want to see uh, APEC economies embracing this. I don't think there's any way that we can avoid less than optimal outcomes if we can't embrace this fundamental concept. If, I can, just, if I can just add to that, I think the worst case scenario is two years from now is you get much more fragmentation. I think that's really that concern that people start speaking about a fragmented digital economy, one around China, one around the United States, one around the EU. And how do you avoid that? And whether you're using C CBPR or whether you're using the WTO, I think the goal should be really to avoid this fragmentation of the digital economy. Because I think that would be the worst outcome for all of us, whether it's the US, whether it's China, whether it's EU, whether it's the rest of the uh, uh, APEC countries. So I, you know, whatever we do, it's got to be this goal of making sure there's much more freer flow within that digital economy that a trade, as a business in Indonesia can decide to use Alibaba or Google or whatever it is, and it's, he doesn't feel that friction because there's that fragmentation. I think that's what we want to avoid. Now, the judgment of success in that is very hard to measure. So that one is, it's, you know, I, I don't know how to measure that. But if you don't have fragmentation, maybe that's success enough. Wendy. So I think two years from now, um, we'll be discussing the New Zealand year. So I would measure success by kind of how these issues are going to feature um, in the New Zealand year. Um, and 
how they're going to set themselves up for meaningful outcomes in these areas, and then the successive hosts of APEC kind of carry that baton. Um, I would also just say that maybe two years from now, there'll be additional countries succeeding to TPP. They'll convince the United States that we should rejoin, um, <laughs> and we can measure success that way as well. <laughs> okay, I think there's one back in the corner there. Thank you. Thank you. T.R. Prosper. Uh, my question revolves around trust, and I want to extrapolate trust into transparency. Can you transfer uh, sensitive information over the internet and still say that there's some transparency? And if so, how would you do it? What would be the best practices? I guess I, guess I would uh, distinguish between transparency in practices um, and transparency in actually availability of information, right? So, um, you know, I think if you look at something like uh, a lot of your question, I think really goes to a, an issue of cyber security. Um, and uh, for instance, in the US context, the NIST, the National Institute of, uh, of Standards under Commerce, um, has developed a very detailed framework uh, of standards um, that enterprises should meet in order to assure uh, cyber security. And enterprises having some transparency about how they meet those, uh, uh, those criteria. And, and actually, you saw some of those principles picked up in, in the, the revised NAFTA, the USMCA. Um, so I think having those kinds of common practices that uh, governments are, are holding their enterprises to and, and transparency requirements for companies as to how they, uh, how they assure data and data, data security is important. And I guess I would distinguish that from um, actual availability of information. I think in general, um, companies who aren't able to provide secure uh, uh, transfer of sensitive information that businesses need don't last uh, uh, very long. So, you know, I think ultimately the market plays an important, uh, an important role in that too. Okay. Any more questions? We're getting near the end, so, oh. Good, this side has kindly come up with some questions. The gentleman here in the second row. You've been eclipsed by the right here as opposed to the left. Hi, uh, Deng Xianlai from news, uh, China's Xinhua News Agency. Uh, Mr. Ambassador, you just said that uh, the APEC is not designed to facilitate bilateral trade talks or bilateral agreements, but are there any overlapping uh, concerns between the uh, APEC agenda and the China-US talks, for example, uh, forced technology transfer or cyber espionage or anything that, uh, can those issues be discussed in the APEC forum that can somehow shed light upon the talks? Thank you. So let me just be clear. What I said is that APEC is designed 
to create best practices and high standards uh, of ambitious nature across uh, the economic <coughs> sphere that should help economies participate in free trade agreements. But it's not its job to solve the problems of an ongoing bilateral discussion itself. As Wendy was pointing out, there are issues like uh, you know, state-owned enterprises, how do they function in the global economy? We actually are trying to engage on that uh, in APEC under the FTAP rubric, and it's a good, safe space in which to have those kinds of discussions uh, if you can get all economies to agree to include it, uh, because APEC is done by consensus as well as being non-binding. So sometimes the challenge uh, for APEC, everyone paid attention to whether we got a leader's statement or not. What you really need to pay attention to is how ambitious is APEC being? How forward-leaning is it being within the scope of the work that it's actually trying to engage on? Because you could get a leader's statement, fine, but unless you're actually doing pragmatic, ambitious work that actually helps businesses and is, creates a more inclusive uh, economy across the board, then we're not succeeding in what we're doing. So it's that that you need to focus on. Um, we do deal with IPR. We deal with a whole number of issues in APEC that uh, can be used or drawn upon when, when you know, economies want to engage in trade discussions. But it's not the design of APEC to go in and help solve that problem within that bilateral context. OK, I think there's another one over here. Yes. I think we'll have time for just one more after this one. Uh, hi, Steve Cruder, private citizen. But um, just wondering, I mean, picking up on a comment that was, uh, was made about TPP, uh, is there a role for, for APEC to help convince the US to get back into TPP? And, and if so, how would you do that? I, I'm not sure who to address to, maybe Wendy or others. <laughs> well, I mean, it's an open I can question. tell you maybe one thing. Look at too broad. Well, maybe one it's thing too broad. I can tell you is that when the leaders get together, there generally are a number of leaders informally who say, by the way, you're always welcome back in. So the invitation mat is out, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, you know, the CPTPP is an agreement without the United States. The TPP is still there for the U.S. to come back in anytime it wants. It signed it, hasn't ratified it, it is still available. We created the CPTPP under Japanese leadership, the 11 economies felt it was important to press ahead. Certain items were taken off uh, the agenda, but the TPP is kept over there. I think that the more important question is that, how do you get the world's most powerful economy back in? Because without the US and CPTPP, it is a smaller grouping just without having the US in there. Others want to join, the South Koreans are interested, even the British are interested in coming back in. But we really want to see the US play that leadership role in the Asia-Pacific economic architecture. And it's something that, you know, the, the point that David made at the start, the tensions around trade are real tensions, not just in the US but around the world. And these are some things that need to be resolved internally within the US as they decide how they want to proceed on these global trade issues, whether within TPP, whether within WTO. Their, their leadership is critical, and they're always welcome back at any time. And the countries will then say, we, we, we're glad that you have helped put this framework together for us. And just building on that response, um, one of the functions we haven't really talked about of APEC is that it really provides an opportunity for a lot of leaders and officials to meet on the margins and talk about issues. 
And so at any APEC meeting, it was always kind of an action forcing event for, for agreements to be signed or concluded or come into effect. And so what we've seen is just a lot of FTA activity in the Asia Pacific region over the past two years without the United States. CPTPP, it, you know, a key agreement, but it's not the only one. And so I think, I think the question you asked is a good one, but I, my response would be that I think that the more the United States is on the sideline of these agreements, um, the more we're just going to hurt and we're going to feel those effects now very soon with CPTPP now in effect for seven countries um, with the U.S., excuse me, with the Japan EU FTA now in effect as of February 1. Um, you know, Indonesia and Australia just concluded an agreement, and I can go on and on and on. And I think those effects now are going to be um, felt heavily um, by U.S. exporters. And the cost of the United States being on the sidelines of these deals is going to become more apparent. And maybe at some point down the road, that will lead the United States to kind of reconsider its bilateral approach and see if there's a way it can get back into this game. Okay, um, I think we are really at the end, and I don't see any hands up anyway. Um, there is one more hand. All right, we'll get one more question, uh, and then we'll uh, call it a day. Okay. Thank you for all your comments today. Uh, Daryl Peake from Salesforce. So one of the things that we are talking about is digital trade, a digital economy, but also part of the fourth industrial revolution is the digital experience. Could you talk in how that really plays into some of your conversations that you're having? The digital experience. Um, I'm not into that uh, discussion <laughs> personally. My digital experience is limited as an old man. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think we've actually been engaging so much in that particular area, but uh, it's APEC, so nothing is beyond the pale of possible discussion. <laughs> Monica? I mean, that, that particular term has not actually been raised, but we've done a lot of things with um, the, uh, uh, like, reaching out into underserved populations and, and doing, you know, things that girls that code. You all mm -hmm. did that down in Peru um, a couple of years ago, doing a lot of things on STEM education. I think there's a, a widespread realization that as societies, the APEC economies need to ensure their citizens can engage fully in the digital society and digital experience. I think that's the driver kind of behind all of this work on APEC and digital. But um, in that term, that specific term, they haven't dealt with it. But in, in terms of trying to say that everybody in our economy needs to be able to access this, um, it, we need to be able to bring broadband. I mean, APEC was saying back in the year 2000 that we needed to bring greater broadband access to all of the APEC economy. So it's been an under, underlying theme for a long time. I think one thing I would just note on that is last year in Papua New Guinea was the host. Um, the Asia Foundation sponsored a project with the APEC Secretariat, and, and we were the kind of techni uh, uh, technology partner on it uh, of an app challenge to um, bring out uh, app developers and coders from across the APEC region to think about uh, new applications to help the handicraft industry in Papua New Guinea reach globally, um, something called billums, which are these, uh, 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 these kind of bags that are um, great kind of local, local handicraft. 
But Papua New Guinea is, you know, we talked about the range of APEC economies, you know, I think it's something like 25% um, uh, online penetration is, you know, a different end of the spectrum than Singapore. And, and how to bring um, digital technologies to these very traditional uh, sectors. So I think that's, that's pretty far away from kind of the rules and norms part of APEC, but it is a part of kind of touching um, societies in different ways and customers in different ways and using APEC to, to kind of highlight those stories and find new opportunities. Okay, we've come to the end of a most excellent panel. My main regret is that I didn't bring bright orange and green shirts for all of you, but perhaps uh, next time we'll be able next to do time. that. Please thank the panel for their... Uh, <laughs>